Well, welcome back, church. I am glad that you're tracking with us. Uh, wherever you are, wherever you're listening and streaming this, we are glad that we to, can be together in this digital age. Uh, let's pray together as we begin to study God's word. Jesus, we thank you so much for this time that we have together. We ask as we are gathered digitally all over the country, shoot, perhaps the world, that you would speak to each one of us. You would quiet the distractions that are going on around, perhaps the kids that are, that are bustling around and, and running. Uh, we pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds, our attention, so we can focus on you, so that we can be more like you in this time that we have together, Jesus. Amen. If you have been tracking with us, then you know as a church we've been walking through the book of Ruth. Ruth uh, has been an incredible journey so far. And what I find really interesting and compelling about the book of Ruth is two things. Number one is that in the book of Ruth, there is no wild, crazy, spiritual, miraculous thing that happens. And what I mean by that is this. Often when we read the Bible, there are... There's an angel that comes down. There's a sea that's parted. There's this audible voice of God. But the book of Ruth is about what happens in life when there is a difference between what you think your life is going to hold and what your actual life does hold. You see, Ruth started off as a Moabite woman. She marries a man who is from the town of Bethlehem, whose parents moved to this distance place and uh, The father-in-law has passed away, Um, her husband has passed away, and Ruth decides to connect herself to Naomi. As she's connected to Naomi, she goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Now, if you didn't track with that, here's what you need to know. Life did not go how Ruth expected it to. It was totally different, and I think it's phenomenal how much that mirrors our cultural moment. You see, currently, in the midst of the COVID-19 coronavirus, None of us expected this in the beginning of February. Or if you did, you are probably one of the smartest people who is watching this. In fact, you might be the smartest person who's watching this. But I don't think anybody expected that four weeks ago, we would be looking in the month of April, almost a total economic shutdown, 70% of our economy is consumer goods, that the entire economy functionally would almost be shut down. For many of you, you didn't expect that when you walked out of your last class, before spring break, that it would be the last time that you walked on campus as a Florida State student. For some of you, if you're a business owner, you didn't expect that when life you know, was going towards the end of the first quarter and things were good and things were profitable, that now perhaps you're not even in business anymore. Or you had a job, the job was fantastic, sales were great, you had job security, and now you don't know where the paycheck's going to come from. And I say that with all the empathy I can, because here's what we know. Here's what we know. Here's what we've all experienced is this, is that there's often a gap between what we expect and what we experience. There's a gap that we have an expectation of what life's going to hold. We have an expectation of what we're going to experience in this life. But when the reality of our life, the experience of our life connects to that, there's a gap. It's inevitable. For some of you, you know, it's beyond this cultural moment. You had an expectation of what your family was going to look like. You had an expectation of what your kids were going to look like, what your kids were going to be like. You had an expectation that your marriage was going to last. You had an expectation that at some point you would get married. You had an expectation that at some point you would be in a better job, not looking to figure out how you're going to pay the next bill because there is no job. You see, there's a gap for all of us between what we expect And what we experience, and the longer that you've been alive, the more that you know this is true. 
that life rarely goes how we expect it to. Life rarely goes how we expect it to. Now, we can kind of make these generalizations, but, but if we're being honest, this is true on an individual level for each one of us. Let me just give you an example of something that's currently going on with us. April for us is a birthday month. My birthday is April 1st, and I love to celebrate. Every year we do the same thing. Every year, uh, William and my dad and I go and we play golf. We take the entire day off. In fact, um, I have thought about making it for all staff day off for my birthday just because I love to celebrate and I love to have fun. And so we go and play golf. And then at at nighttime, we go to dinner at Ricardo's. It is a tradition almost as long as I've been alive for sure, as long as we have been going to Ricardo's. And so that is the tradition of our life. Well, this year, it's just not a possibility. My daughter's birthday is April 8th. And if you have a five-year-old daughter, you know that life revolves around birthdays. It revolves around princesses and ponies and the, the color pink, but it's totally disrupted. And again, the longer that we go on, we know that life rarely goes how we expect it to. And so what do you do with that? What do you do when you are in that gap, when you come to the acute realization, this is not how I thought life was going to be right now. I think as followers of Jesus, this is the most important question we can ask right now. How do we respond as people, as women and men of faith, in this cultural moment, when there is a gap between what we expected life to be like and what we're currently experiencing? Now, before we get to what I think we ought to do with this, I want to show you what I think is the pitfall of what most often happens when there's a gap between what's expected and what we actually experience. This is what happens. We obsess over the opportunity that we wish was in front of us instead of leveraging the one that is in front of us. We spend more time obsessing over what we wish happened, the opportunity that we wish was in front of us, instead of leveraging the one that actually is in front of us. Now, again, this has incredible implications to our cult current cultural moment, but this translates outside of that. For some of us, you wish that you had the opportunity to be in the relationship like your roommate, like your friend. Seems like everybody else is getting engaged and you want to be, but you're not. You wish you had that same business opportunity that somebody else has. In fact, for you, you wish you had the opportunity, you wish you had the skill set to do what someone else you know to earn, what someone else you know is earning or doing. But the truth is, we oftentimes miss the most extraordinary opportunities because, again, this, we obsess over the opportunity we wish was in front of us instead of leveraging the one that actually is. And that's, here's what that presupposes on the other side. There is an opportunity. There is an opportunity in front of you and in front of me. Now, when it comes to leveraging opportunities, when it comes to leveraging opportunities to make the most of every opportunity, the Bible doesn't use the word leverage. I know that's probably a shocker for everyone who's listening to this. The Bible uses a different word instead of leverage. And this is the word that the Bible uses when it talks about this, the word redeem, redeem. The Bible talks about redeeming things, purchasing back those things. Now, in the book of Ruth, we're at a point where Boaz has an opportunity. In chapter 3, Ruth came to Boaz 
It was payday. He had just gotten paid. He had just ate a full meal. He had just drank some wine. He was laying down. He was going to sleep. Ruth goes and sneaks in because of some shady advice that her mother-in-law, Naomi, had given her. She lays down with Boaz, and she basically says, redeem me. I am Ruth. He says, okay, I want to redeem you. But as we talked about last week, before I can be a person who redeems you, I have to be a person of character. And there is someone else. There is a closer redeemer than I. Now, here was their culture. Here's what happened in terms of redemption. For them, in ancient Israel, the way someone would be redeemed is if your husband died, someone in that family line would marry you so your husband's name would be preserved and the the land or the property that your husband owned would continue on down into the generations and generations and generations. Now, again, Ruth had had no kids. She was barren to this point. And so she goes to Boaz, who's an older fella, and she says, Boaz, redeem me. He says, I want to, but first I have to be a person of character. There's someone who is closer in the family line, in the genealogy, who is the, has first rights of refusal to your redemption and to the property that Naomi has. First, let me go talk with him. Let me go have a conversation with him. Let me be a person of character to not skirt around and just kind of justify and compromise my way into this. But first, let me go talk to him. So in chapter four, we pick up with a story of of Boaz's negotiation for Ruth and for Naomi's property. Now, here's what we need to know. Boaz was a man of incredible character, but he was a savant at negotiating. I love these these verses because this is, especially if you're in the business world, there is so much gold inside of the verses that we're going to read. So if you got your Bible, Ruth chapter four, we're going to start at verse one. ready? Okay. So chapter four, verse one says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend and sit down here. Now, first thing you need to know is this. Boaz was intentional about where he went. The gate in the city is where all of the elders would congregate. It was kind of the main thoroughfare to do people's work throughout the day. And so Boaz knew most likely this redeemer who goes through the rest of the chapter unnamed was going to go through the gate. But Boaz also knew this, that if he was going to get a matter settled, he would need elders as the witness, and he's going to knock out two birds with one stone. So Boaz gets up early in the morning. He's a go-getter. He goes to the gate where he knows people are going by. And just by the providential hand of God, he says, it just so happens that the redeemer walks by. And Boaz, who was probably a man of incredible stature, said, okay, friend, I want you to sit here. So the guy sits down. Verse two, and he took 10 men 
of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, these are the people who, had gonna, who were going to kind of officiate and be witnesses to what happened. They would be able to substantiate what was about to, to go down in this negotiation. So they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, this is Boaz talking, Naomi, mother-in-law, who has come from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, again, Elimelech was the original husband of Ruth. So this was supposed to be Elimelech's land. This was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation. But because there was no male heir, this property was now up for grabs or purchase. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. In other words, Boaz says, hey, I've read the contract. I know what the contract says. The contract says you have first rights of refusal. Now, what Boaz is not totally omitting, but Boaz is intentional about how he's phrasing this. Because what Boaz is about to do is drop a bomb that, oh, by the way, there's some baggage to this transaction. He wants to get the, the unknown you know, counterpart in the negotiation to a point where he's thinking about it, considering it. Let me give you some of the information first. Let me give you the good first. And once I've kind of got you committed, let me take a step back and say, hey, there's some, some other information here. Here's what Boaz says. He says, so buy it. If you're going to buy it, buy it. But if not, tell me that I may know. There was no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you, and he, the unnamed negotiator, says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz says, okay, but the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. Now, here's what I love about Boaz. Though Boaz was a man of character, he was also a shrewd negotiator. Sometimes we look at, at what happens in our world and we think, okay, you can either be a good, shrewd negotiator or you can be a person of character. But if you're a person of character, you have to have all the cards on the table from the very get-go. Now, Boaz is not omitting, he's not, he's not withholding the truth, but he is very intentional about how he's phrasing what he's saying, where he's phrasing it, and who's around it. So if you don't get this yet. Boaz sees the opportunity and is incredibly intentional about how he wants to approach and how he wants to seize this opportunity that he has to make Ruth his wife and to purchase this land. Again, chapter three, he was in love with Ruth. When Ruth said, redeem me, he said, are you kidding me? You love me? Like you could go for so many other younger guys, probably better looking guys, maybe more wealthy guys. He says, you want me? And Ruth says, yes. So Boaz is intentional as he approaches him. He says, there's this Moabite named Ruth and you're gonna to need to marry her too. The Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance and take my right of redemption yourself. 
for I cannot redeem it. He says, okay, so you take it because I can't redeem it. Here's, here was the, the internal cost-benefit analysis that's happening in the mind of the Redeemer. You see, if this man who is the Redeemer marries Ruth, then he's one bringing another person, another wife into the fold. But this land that he was initially planning on purchasing, and he was thinking, this is going to add to my general population, my land. This is going to be passed down to my kids. This is going to increase my familial generational wealth. What this now meant was the opposite. This meant that that land, if he was to get Ruth pregnant, Ruth was to have a son, this land would go directly to that son. But not only that, this son, if they had a son, would also be heir to the rest of his stuff. And so the son would actually minimize the rest of the family wealth. And so he looks at it, and it's just a really straightforward, that ain't worth it. And besides, she is a Moabite woman. That was... That was the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low of people. And though it's culturally you know, crazy to think that just because someone was a woman and from a different place, they would be considered the lowest of the low. In their culture, in their culture, again, the period of the judges where it was such a radical sense of individualism, they just thought, no way that's happening. So Boaz sees this as an opportunity. Again, he's been intentional. He's phrased it well. He's got the right people sitting around, and he knows exactly how to execute this contract. Here's what Boaz says. Verse 7. Or verse 6, I'm sorry. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impaired my own inheritance. Take, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, so this is kind of the lawyer pauses and speaks to this. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And this was to say, so that no one could say, no, nah, I didn't really mean it. Like you don't accidentally give somebody your Reeboks or your Nikes, right? You had to be intentional, taking off your sandal, giving it to them. That was a definitive act that says, yes, this is what I want to do. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought her to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. <laughs> the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And you are witnesses this day. Boaz is this weirdly romantic, but incredibly reasonable and logical dude. Boaz, you know, why are you getting married? Tell me why you love Ruth. Oh, man, let me, let me tell you my why behind our relationship. Let me tell you what I am hoping happens. I am hoping that through our marriage, there's an offspring, and that offspring perpetuates the name of my relative, of my cousin, of, 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 of Malon. I'm hoping, you know, not, not, that, not that we fall in love. I'm doing this to preserve the family name. Here's, here's the thing. Boaz, Boaz was a man of character. Boaz was a man of passion. But Boaz was a man who was wise, shrewd, and intentional. 
about what he did. Boaz was a person who understood, I've got an opportunity. And if I'm not intentional in how I look at and leverage this opportunity, the opportunity might pass by. See, it's pretty obvious, but here's, here's the, the, the point in the bottom line of this. That leveraging opportunities takes intentional effort. Leveraging opportunities takes intentional effort. You don't just accidentally make the most of an opportunity. It takes thought, it takes preparation, it takes wisdom, and it takes in every way intention to leverage an opportunity. Now, if you're listening and you're tracking so far, you think, okay, that sounds great, (laughs) but here's the problem. I don't have an opportunity. I have a conundrum. It's not a positive, oh, man, this is great business acquisition. There's this person who wants to, to, to come together, and they want to start a relationship together. There's, there's this incredible thing that we're looking to start together. Here's this wonderful opportunity that I have. You're thinking, man, life is awful right now. And I just want to say, if that's you, I say this with all the empathy that I can that in the midst of the depth of our despair, God is still at work. God is still presenting opportunities, time. We have a limited time on planet Earth. You see, Paul talked about this. If you have read the New Testament, you know in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of this, of this idea. And he says, so look very carefully then how you live. Look very carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise. I don't want you to just be oblivious to what's going on. I want you to be wise in how you walk. And here's what that looks like. Here's what being wise in how you live looks. It's that you would make the best use of the time. You would make the best use of your time because the days are evil. In other words, the days are evil. The days are limited. There's only so much time. There's chaos happening to Paul all around. And Paul would say, when the world is chaos, when the world feels like it's the most evil, that is when it's the most important to use the best use of your time. Perhaps, perhaps, this evil day that you feel, this consequential day, this weight that you feel, Perhaps in the middle of that weight, in the middle of that consequence, there's an opportunity. You see, I think more often than not, I think more often than not, again, we miss the opportunity in front of us. So let me ask this question. What's the opportunity that you're missing? What's the opportunity that you're missing because it's not the one that you wanted? What's the opportunity that you're missing because it's not the one you wanted? <laughs> you might retreat and say, Ben, there are none. Are you kidding me? I, I, I don't see any opportunities in front of me. Let, let me give you a couple examples of things that might be true of you because I think they're true of me. Perhaps you're at your home and you're quarantined. You thought, again, maybe it was your senior year, maybe it's your junior year, maybe it's your master's program. You thought you were going to have an opportunity to say goodbye, to walk across the stage, to graduate. And now that opportunity is there. But perhaps you've thought something along the lines of, I really want to get better at praying. And now you have more time than ever to be a person of prayer. Perhaps for you, you've thought in the past, man, I really want to get better about reading my Bible. 
I really want to get better about being immersed in God's word. You have an opportunity right now. There is opportunity. When you have time, when you have time, you have massive opportunity for spiritual growth. Perhaps for you, it's, it's something totally different. You want to, to be better biblically. You want to be more sound theologically. And if that's you, I would say, man, you have time to do that. Now, I can't, I can't project into everybody's situation, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know, that every single life circumstance that we have, there is opportunity somewhere. And I don't say that as like the name it and claim it, prosperity gospel. If you just believe it will happen. Here's what I know. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, there is redemption as we redeem the time by leveraging the opportunity. The ultimate example of this, if there was ever, ever an evil day, it was the day that Jesus died. If there was an ever a day that it seemed like evil, negative you know, consequences, negative circumstances won the day, it was the day that our Savior hung on a cross. Before that, he was brutally beat. Before that, he was brutally uh, you know, mocked and made fun of and had crowns of thorns. Then he was hung on the cross after carrying it to the point where he couldn't barely even stand anymore. On the day that Jesus died, he did not die simply to withstand the evil to the negative consequence. He died to redeem us. What I love about Ruth, what I love about Ruth is Ruth is us. You got to make this parallel, this connection here that Ruth, Ruth was a person. Ruth was a person who, who was not able to save herself. She needed saving. Ruth was a person who was dependent, who needed someone to step in on her behalf, who needed someone to purchase her. Ruth was a person who, who needed a savior. Boaz was a far lesser figure of Jesus, but Boaz was a person who saw Ruth in light of her status, that her status culturally wasn't what it should have been, though her, her status culturally was kind of the lowest of the low, saw her, loved her, cared for her, redeemed her, purchased her, gave uh, an incredible sum for her. He redeemed and he purchased. And I know, I know, it might be very difficult to hear but let me ask this one more time. What's the opportunity in front of you? What's the opportunity in front of you that you have to redeem, but perhaps you're dismissing because you thought it was going to be a different opportunity. You thought it was going to look a different way. My, my, my good friend, Adrian, Pastor Adrian Crawford over at Engage Church, he says it this way, that too many of us too many of us are committing adultery with someone else's calling because we wish it was our calling instead of focusing on our unique calling here on planet Earth. What's the calling? What's the step? What's the thing that you have a unique opportunity in this season? To be a person of character? To be a person of faith? And again, perhaps for you, the opportunity is you've been fighting a sin. You've been fighting this internal struggle, pornography, selfishness, pride, anger with your wife, with your children, with your family. Perhaps this is an opportunity. 
that you can rely on God, trust in him, grow in him for you to see this upside down time in our culture and in our world as a time of extraordinary growth. Here's what happened as Boaz leveraged the opportunity. Verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses and may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be known and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who tomorrow before Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by his, this young woman. So Boaz, verse 13, took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. Weird Bible language. Don't go too far with that. And the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi. Now remember, Naomi came back saying, I am empty. I am barren. I am bitter. Because God just called. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me blessed. Call me bitter because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. They say, look at Naomi now. Blessed be the Lord who has left you this day without a redeemer. Or who has not left you, I'm sorry, this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on his lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. <laughs> Hold on, a son's been born to Ruth. They said, yeah, but it's, this is an incredible story of redemption. That as Boaz was wise, was intentional about what he was doing, about how he was approaching this opportunity, all of this would be the consequence and the fallout of Boaz's character and Boaz's wise intention. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. And it connects the dots in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. I don't know. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And here's why that's so important. The author is connected to the dots saying, through Boaz's wise, intentional negotiation, through his character and through his intentionality, through his character and through his intentionality, a son was born. This son would be in the line of King David, not too far removed. In fact, Ruth, Ruth, a Moabite woman in the book of Matthew would be named as Matthew is connecting the dots to the people of Jesus that through Boaz and through Ruth would come King David and through King David would eventually come Jesus, the savior of the world. Here's why I say that. You have no clue. I have no clue. We have no clue how God wants to use our opportunity. He, we have no clue how he wants to use this season we have no clue how he wants to take this and how he wants to use it for his redemptive purposes. 
I don't think anybody in that day would think, okay, because of this negotiation with this unnamed negotiator, because of his prudent, shrewd negotiation skills, his intentional negotiation skills, there will come the savior of the world. No awareness that that was going to happen. But God was fully aware it's exactly what's happening. Here's my point. Are you more obsessed with what life has left you without than focusing on the opportunity that God has given you? And if you can see it, if you can at all see the opportunity, here's what I want you to know. Opportunity doesn't just come to fruition. The product of opportunity doesn't come to fruition. It takes us being intentional, being thought, having, having wisdom, being shrewd, being prudent, having accountability. What is the opportunity that God has given you? I know the world is upside down right now. Yours is, mine is, all of ours is. Please do not let this upside down reality that we find ourselves in keep you from the opportunity that God has put in front of you. And for some of you, you don't want to hear that at all. And with all the empathy in my heart, I say, I understand that. Because these might be the darkest days of your life. Or the darkest days might be to come in the coming days and weeks and months. But I promise you, if God can use the death of his son on a Roman cross if he can use that as an opportunity to move forward and cause redemption for his people, then no matter what's happening in your life, there is opportunity. No matter what's happening in your life, there is opportunity. The question is, when life and our expectation is different than our experience, do we see opportunity and will we be intentional with it? I am praying that in these coming days and weeks and months, we would be men and women of faith who make the most of this time, who are a light in a dark and a broken and a hurting world. I pray that God does ministry in you, through you. I pray that those areas of sin are refined, those areas of growth are enhanced, that the gospel goes forward like it never has before. I pray that God would give us the eyes to see the opportunity in front of us and the wisdom to know what to do with it. So I'm going to ask this last question one more time. What's the opportunity in front of you? What's the opportunity in front of you? Will you be intentional about seizing it and redeeming it? Or will you just let it pass? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this time. I pray for everyone who has experienced devastating loss, total uncertainty, radical disruption, and it seems like there is no positive opportunity. There is no redemptive quality to what's currently happening. I pray for the senior who didn't know that they walked across campus for the last time. I pray for the parent who has no clue what they're going to do with their kid because they still got to work, but
but they can't fund any kind of a daycare or a sitter or a person. I pray for the business owner who just shut the doors and is currently wondering if they just shut the doors for the last time. I pray for the person who is in isolation because they're in quarantine and their isolation and their anxiety has turned to depression and they're questioning things and they're wondering things and they're starting to go down a deep, dark hole. God, I pray that you would help us to see you, your redemption, the opportunity that you would use this time in our lives and in the lives of our church. You would use this as a catalyst to grow in our faith, to grow in our relationship with you and for the kingdom to go forward. God, I pray and I ask for women and men all over the place who are listening to this, you would give us the wisdom to see the opportunity the wisdom to know what it means and what it looks like to lean into being intentional. And you would give us the courage to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.